we wanted to do a couple of episodes about um, about money in particular and money as it relates to spirituality. Um, but we also know that your work over the last decade in particular has has gone into some other uh, other things, Christian nationalism. And so we're open to that. Too. Oh, it it's all there, about money, brother. It's we can all, all yeah. It's still about money. <laughs> <laughs> it's still about money. All right. Well, let me try to get some kind of intro in here, and then, uh, and then, yeah, let's let's go ahead and talk about money. All right. Hey, friends. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today on uh, Crisis of Faith. We have a really special episode for you. I'm joined by Joe, and my name is Drew, of course, and then uh, we're going to be interviewing Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove uh, and talking about cash. Cash is king, brothers and sisters. Uh, we want to talk about money and spirituality, so let's roll out a really special little jingle for that, and then we'll jump straight into the conversation. show where's my money? What kind of store are you running here? I put my cash in that plate, now my blessing is late If it was ever coming my way in the first place Preacher, I hate to say it But I'm starting to think you already know People need water and food And all that I see you do Is build a bigger house for your Jesus shows <laughs> Yeah yeah, so we are here, as Drew said, with Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. Um, he's a spiritual writer and a speaker and a new monastic who lives at Rupa House, which is an intentional Christian community and hospitality house in Durham, North Carolina. He's got this golden Southern voice. So thanks for being here with us, Jonathan. Oh, thanks for having me. It's good to be with y'all. Did I miss the jingle? Was that... It'll, it'll come later. Oh, okay, <laughs> all right. We'll send you the jingle when it's done. We'll have to send you the jingle. It goes in between. I thought you were grab that guitar behind you and break out into something. <laughs> hey, here you we go. Right right <laughs> I was going to sing along. <laughs> the jingle isn't even written yet. The jingles end okay. up getting written uh, about the episode after, uh, after uh, it's done. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, Jonathan, tell us about about Rupa House and what is it and what do you do there? Well, you know, we've all been at home the past year. My home <laughs> is a hospitality house in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, in 2003, my wife Leah and I were part of a Christian peacemaker team delegation in Iraq. And um, uh, our friends there were in a car accident in the middle of the war. And the people in a town called Rutba saved their lives. Uh, the doctor told us afterwards, uh, three days ago, your country bombed our hospital, but we'll take care of you. Mm. And he uh, sewed them up and sent us on our way. And uh, the more I told that story after we came back, you know, as somebody raised on the Bible, the more I realized that it was the Good Samaritan story. You know, the people who were supposed to be our enemies had saved our friends' lives. And picked them up out of the ditch and paid for their care. And uh, Jesus says, go and do likewise at the end of that story in Luke's gospel. So we thought that was a word for us. And we started this hospitality house and named it after the people of Rutba who had shown us hospitality. Um, hospitality houses have been around for a long time. Dorothy Day and Peter Morin started them during the Great Depression in New York City. And uh, they spread as places where 
uh, people of faith live together and keep a Christ room or Christ rooms to welcome the Jesus who promised to show up at our door. And so we've, uh, we've tried to do that and uh, have had a journey of, you know, meeting all sorts of folks. Uh, we live in a, we live in what's called the city of medicine, uh, Durham, North Carolina. Uh, I sometimes say, you know, it was built on tobacco. This was the home of the American Tobacco Company, which is the largest corporation in the world in 1900. Um, so it gave the world cancer and now it treats people who've uh, died of cancer in city mm -hmm. medicine. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's sort of like living beside the pool at Bethesda, you know, all these folks come in our very expensive system of healthcare trying to, uh, you know, get healed. And um, a lot of folks are poor. Uh, so we've ended up um, being a place where, you know, people who spend all their money trying to get well and are still sick have come and live with us. People coming home from prison have come to live here. Uh, we've had folks who've, you know, been veterans of wars and dealing with PTSD and other injuries that come from that have lived here. Um, and a place where we've come to know quite personally, the reality of poverty in this country. So, uh, yeah, it's a, I think it's a place where the realities of our society have been very clear and where we have uh, indeed uh, been witness to uh, God's promise to show up in these places and to uh, make something new possible. Uh, I believe in beloved community because I have experienced it around the dinner table with, you know, people who've been incarcerated and undocumented and kicked to the curb in every way by this society. And nevertheless, um, uh, God is uh, in our midst and doing something. So that's home for me. Incredible. You've also been doing some work recently with the Poor People's Campaign with Reverend William Barber. Uh, can you tell us about that work too? Well, life among poor and marginalized folk uh, has uh, helped us to see here uh, how big an issue poverty is in our country. And uh, the Poor People's Campaign is uh, compelling to me, not only because it's raising those issues, but because it's led by poor and impacted people all across the country. Um, you know, I was raised in rural North Carolina in the 1980s and 90s when the moral majority was, you know, recruiting people who look like me to be part of a right-wing reactionary movement. Um, and I kind of got all involved in that. I was trained up as a culture warrior as a young person. Uh, but when I um, saw the uh, bankruptcy of that kind of uh, manipulation of faith for political power, uh, I, I didn't really know where else to turn in terms of how to live out faith in public life. And I was uh, 16 years old when I met uh, Reverend William Barber and heard him talking about Jesus in a way that sounded very different than, you know, Jerry Falwell and everybody I'd heard on Christian radio. And, um, and I just said, I wanted to learn more. So he's been a, uh, a, a mentor and a, a real guide for me, my whole adult life in terms of understanding the, powerful witness of the prophetic uh, Christian tradition uh, here in the South, uh, moral fusion movements that have brought black and white folks together throughout the history of the South, uh, but also just around the world, the, the prophetic witness of Christianity. Um, 
and I'm delighted that uh, the Poor People's Campaign and um, uh, you know many parts of his ministry in the last few years have introduced his work to many more people. Um, I think he's one of the most important voices in America, particularly when it comes to uh, a moral vision for the future of our life together. So we wanted to talk to you. We're, we put some stuff out on our social media about, you know, we've been having these conversations together and what, what do people want to talk about? And several people um, said they wanted to talk about money and tithing and debt and all kinds of things that come up, you know, in, in evangelical conversations a lot. Uh, and so I thought, well, if we're going to talk about money, we got to call, we got to call Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. You... <laughs> Uh, wrote a book, I don't know how long it's been ago, now 10 years or something, um, God's Economy, Redefining... God's the, Economy, yeah. I pulled the it off health the and shelf. wealth gospel or something? Is that? I pulled it off the shelf this morning, and uh, <laughs> it was published in 2009. 2009, which, okay. Yeah, which means I think I wrote it in 07 and 08. Yeah. So it's been a minute, but uh, <laughs> I think it mostly holds up. <laughs> yeah, I... You, you know, know, when I, I love... wrote it, when I wrote the book, I, re I recall uh, Dave Ramsey was, you know, recruiting people for his university of financial peace. And, you know, everybody <laughs> was learning how to keep their cash in envelopes for various purposes, you know, right. budgeting model. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, while the sort of practicalities of that might be all right, I found the sort of premise of that and, you know, many of the related uh, health and wealth sort of uh, uh, ministries troubling. And uh, well, I think looking back, you know, a dozen years later, I mean, you see somebody like Ramsey, you know, who completely is defying, you know, mask mandates and any yeah. uh, public health measures related to COVID. He's all in on Christian nationalism. You begin to see that these things are all kind of woven together. Um, once you make faith about uh, becoming a, a financially prosperous Christian, uh, you're sort of tied in with the systems of power that I think are being abused um, towards so many bad ends in this world. So, so I wrote the book because I was just grateful that, um, you know, here in this place and in our life together, we got kind of adopted into the Southern Freedom Movement. And in particular, I, I did, dedicated this book to Ann Atwater because she, she was our local uh, sort of civil rights leader veteran who was still living and uh, organizing in Durham when we came here. And she really adopted us into that family. And, uh, and you know, the economy that I witnessed in her household alone I think was a powerful image of so much of what Jesus talks about in the gospel. You know, this notion uh, that, uh, that God made everything so there's always already enough. And uh, that doesn't mean that um, uh, the faithful or Christians are going to, uh, you know, be the wealthiest people, but it means that you can learn to trust uh, an economics of providence in any situation. And, you get this image of, you know, Jesus breaking the little lunch of the kid, you know, the bread and the fishes and spreading it out. And in the pieces, uh, there's a kind of multiplication that happens. I witnessed that 
in uh, Grandma Ann's house. Every day I was over there, you know. Yeah. She took what little she had, she broke it, she blessed it, and she made sure that everybody in her neighborhood had food to eat and money to pay their bills. And, uh, and you know, there, there was almost always a crisis, but the crisis was the invitation into the kind of faithfulness that uh, uh, allowed us to learn what God's economy looks like. So I, I tried to write that as a vision that, was, that would take seriously the way that Jesus says, you know, faith is about material things. It is about bread to eat. It is about the here and now, but it's not about, you know, making you the um, uh, sort of a exemplar of American success and financial peace. It's about inviting uh, us all into an alternative where um, uh, sometimes I say it's, you know, the, the, the beauty of the vision is that the, that the poor get something to eat and the, and the rich get uh, something to meet their deep spiritual need that comes from uh, the isolation that so often comes with wealth. It's a kind of leveling of the table, you know, Mary's song that the, that the, uh, the rich are sent away empty, uh, not because God doesn't want uh, rich people to be part of the kingdom of God, but because until you can learn to hunger and thirst for justice in this world, you can't be part of what God wants. And so I think all that is part of God's economy. And that's what I was, that's what I was trying to, paint a picture of in this book. Wow. And you talk some about Jesus having these tactics, right? Guerrilla tactics that he teaches us for, um, I don't know, entering into this economy. What does that look like? Can you tell us about some of those tactics? Well, you know, the, um, <clears throat> the idea of tactics comes from uh, the sort of weapons of the week in the world, right? I mean, when you're in charge of something, you know, you get to sit at the boardroom table or, you know, get to write the legislation, whatever, you get to set up the system. Um, you can sort of imagine uh, the best of possible worlds and try to sort of spell it out and make it work. Um, poor and marginalized people have never had such privilege. And so the question becomes, how do you uh, insert the possibility of another world of another system in the midst of the brokenness. And, um, uh, you know, that's um, sometimes referred to as, you know, guerrilla tactics. Uh, you know, we, we, we look around the world and sometimes look down our nose at this, but it's worth remembering that uh, the American Revolution, for example, was won with guerrilla tactics, <laughs> right? Uh, the, uh, you know, the Tea Party was a guerrilla tactic. Uh, most of the way the Revolutionary War was fought against the British was all guerrilla tactics. So, um, so this is not, uh, uh, you know, uncommon even to the American experience, if we're honest about um, our history at any rate. Uh, I think if you read Jesus as a uh, nonviolent guerrilla uh, um, tactician, uh, a lot of what he teaches about money uh, makes a lot more sense. Um, for example, uh, give to whoever asks. That's one that... Uh, People often, uh, you know, if you think about that in terms of a sort of instruction for how a system ought to work, uh, people dismiss it as unrealistic. You know, how could you possibly make it down a busy city street if you gave to whoever asked? You wouldn't have anything in your wallet by the time you got to the end of the block. Uh, well, that's not Jesus's point. Jesus's point is that this tactic, particularly for people who have been pushed to the edges of uh, an economy that exploits people, this is a tactic 
for uh, building relationships that can interrupt the system as it exists. So every request, every you know, uh, plea for bread, for something to eat, for some uh, resource is an invitation into relationship that can uh, lead to building a new kind of community, a new sort of uh, movement. This is in fact how Jesus built a uh, poor people's campaign in his own day, right? We just came through the celebration of the Easter season. And I think people often forget that, you know, when Jesus was in the Galilee and when Jesus was moving about um, the place that he knew, uh, he, built, he built a popular movement. And what happens, you know, in Holy Week is that popular movement marches on the Capitol. And in that march on the Capitol, you know, has a powerful demonstration of uh, the coronation of this Jesus, this Christ, as the ruler, you know, as the uh, person who's bringing in a new political economy. And uh, it's all poor people, and they're all excited because this economy would be good news to them. And they wave the palm branches. That's what you do when a, you know, when an imperial ruler comes in in the ancient world. You wave a palm branch, you know, the symbol of their power, and you lay it down, you know, on the street to lay out the red carpet, as it were, uh, uh, to welcome them into the city. Well, that's all played out there in the Gospels, and it's a popular movement that Jesus has built by using these tactics and teaching people to use these tactics, right? To give to whoever asks, to break what you have and bless it, to share, to build a new economy that gives people a, a, a concrete image of how the world could be different to the extent that it even interrupts the system and interrupts it to such an extent that it scares the people who were in charge, both the political and the religious leaders, scares them to death. They decide they have to kill Jesus. And of course, they get to him by using money, right? Uh, it's 30 pieces of silver that offered to Brother Judas that gets him to sell out the Lord and to uh, come in and uh, uh, you know, be, be part of uh, overturning the popular movement. Uh, but the beauty of the story, of course, the beauty of the story is you can kill it, but it doesn't stay dead. Jesus rises again. And in Jesus's resurrection, uh, we have, you know, uh, the promise that the movement continues even uh, despite the violence of the state. And I think that uh, that is a beautiful uh, remembrance of the story that is rooted in these tactics that Jesus taught. I think a lot of a lot of these tactics that you're talking about or that Jesus talks about are um, really geared in some ways more than being about money. They're about making friendships, right? Um, so you talk about investing in like independent people based economies rather than uh, I don't know, in other ways that we invest. Um, so I'm interested. Can you can you expand on that a little bit? Like, what does that look like? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I think um, the early church picks up on what Jesus was teaching, uh, and we read a description of it early in Acts, second and fourth chapter, mostly, where it says that the you know, believers took their resources and shared them in common, and there was uh, no one among them who was in need. 
it's it's a crazy thing. It's it's amazing that we don't uh, pay more attention to that. But the, the Bible literally says that the early church ended poverty in their midst uh, and ended it simply by practicing the tactics of Jesus. That, uh, as Paul will later say, you know, whoever had uh, uh, too much didn't gather too much, and whoever had too little didn't gather too little because they shared, you know, what was among them, and everyone had what they needed. Um, well, that's an ancient vision, right? Comes right out of manna in the desert, uh, but it's something that Jesus is trying to operationalize in uh, this movement that Jesus gathers, and it's something that, uh, according to the accounts that we have, was actually put into practice by the early church. Well, I think it's important to say that that, you know, that didn't go away um, while, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of this world's money has been invested in promoting, uh, you know, these uh, uh, sort of uh, ways of twisting Christian scriptures to essentially, um, you know, prop up free market capitalism, um, especially um, there's a little bit of history that I think it's important for people to understand. Um, uh, we, we think a lot of this stuff is normal, but uh, in the 20th century, uh, particularly in the early 20th century, uh, there were a lot of Christians who paid attention to uh, the teachings of Jesus and the um, economic implications of it, and actually said that we had to put that in practice in public life. Um, uh, most of those folks who were well-known uh, are now talked about by historians and theologians as people who taught a social gospel, um, though there are more than one social gospel, there's certain different versions of it. Um, it's, it's really striking to think about the influence that that had on the United States in the 1930s and 40s. Um, Frances Perkins, for example, was uh, strongly influenced by the social gospel. She becomes uh, the labor secretary in FDR's administration and uh, really pushes through uh, some of the most um, uh, progressive policies that we still rely on in this country. I mean, social security, uh, the idea of a, of a minimum wage. We've been talking about minimum wage recently. You know, Franklin Roosevelt said, again, largely influenced by the social gospel, that um, any company in the United States of America that doesn't pay its people a living wage doesn't deserve to exist. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a pretty, it sounds radical uh, to people today, but this man was the president of the United States. And th there was a kind of consensus among uh, many Christians that uh, had had developed because of this social gospel and because of this attention to the economic implications of the teachings of Jesus and the early church. Well, what, what, what most people don't realize today is that there was a very intentional and well-funded uh, program that lasted decades to push back against that and to uh, invest in something called Christian libertarianism. Uh, the historian who's written most clearly about this is Kevin Cruz at Princeton University. If anybody wants to grab his book, it's called uh, One Nation Under God. But he just tells the story of how corporations got together. They said this, I mean, these, these folks are gonna, are gonna limit our profits. We need to get uh, uh, people to preach in churches that Jesus blesses the free market system. 
And uh, they did that. They paid a man named James Fifield to start something called spiritual mobilization. He had, you know, all this money to create free literature and these preaching competitions where, you know, pe people would be uh, paid, you know, if they could preach the best sermon for the free market. <laughs> and this, uh, this actually leads directly to sort of mid 20th century uh, evangelicalism. Uh, the ministry of Billy Graham is really propped up and puffed by some of the same people uh, who, who had invested in that. And, uh, and, and there's a way in which uh, a lot of money, again, it's all about money. A lot of money got invested in the 20th century in uh, promoting and encouraging uh, teachings about money in Christian churches that um, I think if you pay attention to them are antithetical to these tactics and practices that Jesus taught. So uh, that's the context that we're in. Yeah. And I think uh, over and against that, it's important to say that, um, that there have still always been people who've practiced these tactics and who have had these alternative economies. Um, uh, a, lo a lot of, uh, oftentimes they are people who themselves have been marginalized. I mean, when we look at the civil rights movement, for example, uh, almost everyone recognizes that the civil rights movement was deeply faith rooted. Uh, of course, the you know most famous spokesperson of the civil rights movement was a preacher, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and and yet we often think about the civil rights movement primarily as uh, you know a campaign for civil rights. You know the desegregation of, of, of lunch counters and that kind of thing, and voting rights, you know, the 1965 Voting Rights Act. But it's, it's important to recognize that the, the people who organized that movement and who were working with folks on the ground uh, also saw a need for a, a, a radical shift in the economy. And the civil rights movement led directly into the Poor People's Campaign of the late 1960s. And many of those people experimented with all sorts of cooperatives and, and uh, you know, farms that were community owned, um, um, uh, companies that were owned by the workers. I mean, really an effort to put into practice the uh, uh, tactics of Jesus that we're talking about here uh, in order to, um, you know, make uh, a different economic reality possible for folks who uh, who worked every day and didn't have enough money to feed their children and house themselves. And that's, uh, that's, you know, a continuing reality that comes right up to the present. Most people do not realize that, you know, even before this COVID crisis that we're in now, 140 million people in the United States were poor or low income. Um, which is nearly half of the country, right? Uh, in the richest nation in the history of the world, nearly half of the people are um, either unable to uh, cover their basic expenses uh, with the work that they do, or are one small emergency away from homelessness or bankruptcy. Wow. So um, there were a couple of oh. things in there. I, I was just... Um, kind of just going to point back to one was <laughs> almost occurred to me like a joke. I don't mean it as a joke, but when you talked about the preaching competitions where yeah. the, the best preachers would, would walk away with these cash prizes. And like uh, we just recently talked on, on the crisis of faith about what 2020 sort of Netflix everyone's church experience mm -hmm. to the point where what we actually saw was every, I mean, really speeding up the capitalistic process of church growth. Um, mm -hmm. Like the biggest churches with the best preachers and the best production values saw 
massive growth uh, in this yeah. season of time. Like a lot of people just like, well, the, the preaching competition kind of won out like that. <laughs> that's still part yeah. of the way that the church kind of moves through and less people in church today than there were um, at the start of all of this, but more people in bigger churches. Um, the, uh, <laughs> I don't, I just hit me like the preaching competition is still winning out. Like we're still seeing the, that, um, kind of play out as a, as a main way that Christian community is mm. expressed in evangelicalism mm. is that that's how everyone thinks of the church is through these mega church models and the, like yeah. the best preachers. And I, and I think and what Jesus yeah. What Jesus saw so clearly and taught so well was that you don't, you know, you don't beat the empire's production value with a greater production value. You, <laughs> you have to interrupt it with, you know, a, a, a radically authentic community that gives people what everybody's hungry for. But yeah. the, you know, the, uh, the, the mass marketing always figures out how to give you a, 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 a little hint of in such a way that keeps you coming back for more, you know, it's, it's carbonated sugar water for your soul. Um, <laughs> well, what people really want is what people really want and really need is water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, it also had me thinking, you've said several things that have had me thinking about the ways that we talk about um, money in church context. And even, you know, that I've, I've certainly been guilty of com complicit in for years and years uh, you know i've i was uh i don't know what i am anymore but i was an evangelical preacher for you know my first 10 years of professional life um in in various ways and i i pastor a small church that we started here now just a small community of people that you know we're having the conversations differently but i i do think about the ways that we've talked about money being antithetical like in complete opposing force to the idea that what the ways that we're talking about money as Christian community being about meeting the needs of others, being about ending poverty in our areas, being about that have not been, we have talked about money as a way of personal wealth moving forward. We've talked about envelopes of cash and, you know, and tithing as a way of being more blessed. Um, in, in your own personal finances, there's this sort of shift between, well, let's talk about money in the ways that Jesus did and the ways that the early church modeled. Uh, what we do with our money is actually about bringing heaven to earth um, in the ways that we can shifting to, well, the ways that we talk about money is about um, seeing myself blessed, seeing my, mm. my increase blessed so that I'll have experience more increase or, Mm -hmm. Or even just seeing my my finances managed and such, because I think that's what Dave Ramsey's uh, empire does so well for people. Is it's not even about generosity. It's not about building some sort of um, kingdom of generous giving as much as it's about protecting personal wealth through practical. You know, they call it practical biblical yeah. um, spending practices, biblical money practices, and I just I think it's so odd. <laughs> <laughs> but well, you've put your you've put your finger right on something and uh i would just encourage you and uh, those you know in a similar situation which i find myself in too to uh not give up on uh being an evangelical preacher <laughs> but maybe reclaim the evangel right when jesus yeah. preaches his first sermon 
Luke chapter 4, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, quoting the prophet Isaiah, to preach evangel. It's evangel in the Greek. To preach good news to the poor. Um, yeah. That's the message, right? Yeah, for and, sure. You know, to the extent that uh, anybody says, that, you know, the God of the Bible wants to bless you. Well, that's true. You know, God wants to bless all of us. But what is the blessing that God offers? I think that's what uh, God's economy is really about. It's about recognizing that the, the real blessing is to be part of this new order that God is trying to bring into the world. Yeah. It is good news to the poor because it says um, your poverty is not your fault. Right. I mean, that's the deep lie behind so much of this financial responsibility garbage. It pretends that, you know, people who are making it are making it because they've taken responsibility for themselves. You know, they've dealt with their debt. They've been right. responsible. Uh, whereas, you know, the half of the country that we live in that uh, is poor on the verge of poverty is somehow, uh, you know, irresponsible and, and, and should be yeah. blamed for that. No, the reality is that there is corporate corruption. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. That has created a tax system that allows for some people. I mean, look at this pandemic that we've just come through. Right. This is a, a health crisis that has created an economic crisis. Everybody acknowledges that. What has been the result of that economic crisis? Well, billionaires have seen their profits soar. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Jeff Bezos, who was the richest man in America, is now, uh, I don't know, something like almost three times, I think, as rich as he was before. Um, retired. His, Enough. His, right. Again. He retired. Like he oh, just, yeah, he retired. Yeah, during this, he hits the he hits. We don't top. need to make any more money. Exactly. And yet, and yet, in the middle yeah. of the pandemic, you know, he cuts hazard pay for his workers Right. And he invests in a, a campaign to stop the workers in Alabama from organizing a union at the Amazon plant down there. Why? Yeah. Because people who have money want to maintain control of a system that allows their profits to grow while low wage workers uh, are, are, are hardly surviving. And that's right. a, that's a system that we've more or less accepted. And then oftentimes that we turn around and say that God blesses, you know, we say right. we, right. we give thanks to God for the abundance that God has made possible through the workings of the free market economy. No, 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 that the God didn't make that possible. The people who own these corporations have purchased politicians who've made this possible. I mean, look at the change in the corporate tax rate over the, I'm not talking about just over the last few years, look at it over the last six or seven decades, right? We've gone from uh, being a country where uh, corporations, you know, paid, um, you know, typically somewhere around a third of uh, what they were bringing in, in order to support the infrastructure, right, that makes their businesses possible. 
and I'm not just talking about roads that you can drive your trucks on. Right, stuff, no. but I'm talking about you know public education, right? You know, uh, public health. You know, <laughs> that you have a a labor force that's healthy and they can show up for work. I mean, th- th- these are these are common goods. These are things that we hold in common. Well, by by pretending that Jesus is some sort of you know libertarian and that any attempt to care for the common good is is radical Marxist socialism, you know, that's anti-Christian. By, by, by accepting that narrative, we've, you know, we've moved to this uh, 21% tax rate, you know, which has impoverished uh, all of our collective efforts to take care of folks. Uh, it has uh, uh, paralleled a uh, growing inequality uh, right between the haves and the have-nots. So while Brother Bezos and, and billionaires like him have seen their profits soar, um, the low-wage workers of this country, who are often in hospitality work, right? Uh, well, the, they they have still the highest unemployment rates in the midst of the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, and yet those who are working are on the front lines and and are bearing the brunt of uh, the public health crisis. So it's a We've lived through a year that has really exposed the inequality that we often try to uh, uh, ignore or paint over. And I think that gives the church an opportunity, at least, to be honest about this, to say, um, we need to go back to the text. We need to go back and ask, what the what is evangelicalism? Yeah. If Jesus's evangel is good news for the poor, what are we preaching that's good news to the poor in our communities. Yeah. I'm, How are I'm, we putting that into practice? I'm so with you on that. And I, <laughs> I like that you brought that up. It's, it feels like it's something that comes up on our podcast pretty regularly right now that, that we end up saying something to the effect of, I wish we had a different name for ourselves, but really, but really the only reason that we feel the need to have a different name is because we just want to reclaim the name that we had to begin with. Like usually if I call my, if I say, I don't know if I think of myself as an evangelical preacher anymore. It's just because just in case the FBI is listening, I want them to know I didn't raid the Capitol and mm-hmm. and do anything on January 6th. Right. <laughs> it's it's the whole idea that we almost feel the need to separate ourselves from a thing that bears our name, but not mm-hmm. our mission. Yeah. Um, and so I, I love that you're that you're saying what we actually need to do is reclaim that evangel portion of uh of who we are welcome back joe thanks sorry about that i got knocked off the internet i'm having a a day (laughs) (laughs) we're all having a day man Um, i'm on the i'm on the (laughs) tail end of my recovery from my second uh 19 injection uh i also woke up this morning and the power had been off and couldn't get my computer rebooted until about two minutes before we came on here and uh, Pittsburgh is falling apart, apparently, for Joe. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have any final questions or things that you wanted to get into, Joe? Or is there anything, uh, Jonathan, well, yeah. that you want? I wanted to. Um, Let's so do that. We, Let's hit a question. We've met you... before. Okay. Jonathan, we, we have um, indeed. We've shared a meal together. We have about 15 years ago. I was a student then at Eastern University, which is your alma mater as well. But you were a few years ahead of me. And you had come back to speak. I don't think it was about God's economy, but maybe it was. Um, you come back to, to Eastern to speak, and we had dinner with 
Margaret Peterson, who's been on the show. So longtime listeners right. will know her. All kinds of connections, <laughs> yes. And uh, and with her late husband, Dwight. Oh, and, two beautiful souls. Yeah, beautiful souls. absolutely. Uh, you know, in those, I, I met you and you were telling stories about the Rupa house and I heard from Shane Claiborne at Eastern and, and people who are doing this um, part of this new monastic movement. And I thought, man, I've never met anybody. I grew up Christian my whole life and was in the church and I never met anybody who like believed what Jesus said <laughs> and took, <laughs> took his word seriously and tried to live them out. Um, and that was so exciting to me. I, I, tried to read everything I could get my hands on that you guys wrote and tried to, you know, um, I remember reading God's economy. I think I must've picked it up when it came out and I thought this is just such a beautiful and exciting vision. And I was rereading it, uh, just the other day to prepare for this conversation. And it's a few, been a few years now and I've got a mortgage and three kids and I've got, (laughs) got a retirement account with not much in it. And I, you know, try to think about hoping for putting something away for my kids to go to college at some point. Mm-hmm. And I read it differently now. I, I read it now. And I think honestly, it, it excited me the first time I read it. And this time reading it, I think I just felt guilty. <laughs> mm. Uh, mm. I, I felt like, I think he's right about, about the vision that Jesus had for the world. And I just, I don't know. I can't do that. I can't, (laughs) or or I don't want to do that. Or I don't want to, you know, I want to, I want to put a little bit of money in my 401k. I want to put away from my kids college rather than investing in these. um, I don't know. I don't know. That's just where I am. Um, Well, you know, one of the things I think is important to, recognize about what Jesus teaches is that none of us can do it on our own. That's one of the ways that Jesus's message has been so distorted uh, in the individualism of American society. Jesus is inviting people into a community and inviting people to build a community. And so often um, we've just tried to figure out, you know, how we can do it as individuals or as individual family units. And so um, I don't, um, you know, I, I don't think uh, guilt ever gets us much of anywhere uh, other than, yeah. you know, to a point of maybe taking something seriously, but it, you know, it's, it's, it's not a guilt isn't very productive. So I, I always invite people who maybe feel a little guilty when they read the gospel to say, well, Maybe, you know, instead of uh, asking yourself, how do I fall short of this vision? Uh, maybe you should ask, where is this vision being lived out? And, uh, it, you know, how, how could I be more of a part of communities like that? Because, um, you know, I think one of the realities that we're going to have to deal with in this present moment is that the Holy Spirit is moving to bring God's good news in places that we don't think of as Christian. We don't think of as God's work. Uh, If, in fact, 
white evangelicalism or, you know, uh, um, um, what sometimes is called Americanity, you know, this uh, very American Christianity that uh, has uh, uh, been so widespread in our culture and, you know, promised people financial peace and other things. Um, if, in fact, that is a, a distortion of the gospel, then God probably long ago started moving and working in other spaces to bring God's good news. And my theology of the Holy Spirit is just such that I believe the Holy Spirit can work anywhere in this world that God made. And wherever uh, the gospel gives us eyes to see the Holy Spirit showing up, uh, we should go and join it and be part of it. I think, for example, I think I mentioned this in this book, uh, one of the most deeply Christian things I think anyone could do in a local community in this country is to join their Muslim neighbors who uh, actually take what um, both their scriptures and ours call usury seriously. You know, this Muslims have banks that don't charge interest because the Bible says you ought not to charge interest. <laughs> They actually take that seriously. <laughs> why, not, why not go talk to them? Right. Yeah. You know, rather than rather than feel guilty that we don't live up to what Jesus said, why not say, well, our Muslim sisters and brothers sure seem to do something similar to what Jesus is saying. Why don't we go learn from them? Why don't we go ask them uh, how we should finance a house? They actually have some pretty good ideas. Wow. Because you got to finance a house. Yeah. Somehow. Right. I mean, um, I, I often think of a, Howard Thurman has a beautiful meditation on the Jesus's temptation around economics. When Jesus was in the desert, when the devil comes and says to Jesus, who is hungry, man does not live by bread alone. You know, can't you turn the stones into bread? The devil says, and in Thurman's imagination, he says, Jesus wrestles with it all night long. Jesus says, I need bread, and yet I don't live by bread. I need bread, yet I don't live by bread. I need, he says, all night long, Jesus wrestles. I need bread, but I don't. He says, and then, as if in a flash of realization, Jesus says, the scriptures say, man does not live by bread alone, Right? Um, this, this notion that, yes, everybody has material needs. We have to learn how to meet those needs, and yet that alone is not enough, right? There is a deeper mm -hmm. hunger. We have to see how God is trying to invite us into uh, an alternative reality, even in the midst of meeting our basic needs. I think that's a, I think that's a powerful insight of the gospel text and something that someone like Thurman helps to illuminate. Yeah, that's really, that's really good. Um, I want to share, I'm going to try something here that uh, may or may not make sense to what we're saying, but just from personal experience, I feel like I spent, and, and I do think, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of people around my age experienced something similar, but I spent the better part of my twenties, um, most of my twenties feeling, uh, rather poor, um, mm -hmm. feeling like, I, and I wasn't, it was, it was white privilege, poor, you know what I mean? It was, I never, 
I never had, there were always safety nets. Um, even in the, even in the times that we ate peanut butter and jelly for lunch and dinner, that was somewhat out of pride that I didn't want to call my dad and say, can I use this extra credit card that you put in my wallet before I left home tonight and go get a steak dinner? Like, um, I spent, so, so to say all that, I, I spent so much time really just trying to get to the point where I wouldn't have to think too much, um, at the gas pump. And I wouldn't have to think too much at the grocery. Like my goal for wealth in my life was like one day, I just want to get to the point where if I need to spend money on something, I don't have to think too hard about whether we're going to make it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, maybe doesn't, maybe everybody doesn't get to get to the same place of privilege, but I think a lot of people do get somewhere, somewhere in their lives to a place in their careers and their you know, where there's a little more stability to things, there's a little more um, money in the bank and whatever. And we start to realize that that whole search for survival, that whole like, okay, that drive to just not be in poverty, that drive to was whatever that was that made us feel uncomfortable and, and worried and lacking peace, that thing is still there even when you have enough. So now I'm in my thirties and I can't point to the same thing that I could then I can't say, well, I'm just not sure if we can buy all the groceries we need to this week. I'm just not sure we can. I know we can. I'm not sure if we can put gas in both cars. this week. We can, I know we can. And yet I still feel the same anxiety about it. The same um, worry about it. The same at times. Now it feels more like guilt. It was like, well, am I just, I'm just not grateful for what I have. And it makes me wonder it's still preacher drew taking this back to like individual responsibility and individual thinking about these things. But it does make me think that perhaps Jesus's teachings about these things, perhaps the, the main goal isn't guilt, but freedom <laughs> that he's actually saying, whether you have way too much yeah. or not quite enough, when your focus is on those things, you will never be totally free of them. You'll either feel guilty for not giving enough of what you have or not being grateful enough for what you have, or you'll feel um, like your next meal is not a sure thing. And I don't know, it just that Matthew six mm. teachings of Jesus where he's like, well, can look at the lilies of the field. They mm. they're beautifully clothed and they don't worry about it. Look at mm. the, can, can we not live in an economy that, um, that is more open-handed about what we have um, and not, not from a place of guilt, not from a place of like, God will be mad at me if I'm not like that, or I won't be participating in the, but more from a place of realizing that Jesus is inviting us to freedom from this way of thinking that just will never go away, no matter how much or how little we have any other way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it makes me think, I mentioned earlier that um, I felt like I saw uh, God's economy in practice. Uh, maybe, you know, in for the first time in sort of concrete daily life in Ann Atwater's household. And um, when I wrote this book, nobody knew who Ann Atwater was, but... Um, there was a Hollywood movie made about her since then uh, called The Best of Enemies. So some people who are listening here may have 
you know, may be familiar with uh, Ann Atwater as the, you know, uh, powerful sister who, you know, challenged the Klansmen and ended up becoming friends with them in the movie that you saw at the theater. But, um, but in her home, uh, what strikes me as I listen to your kind of accounting of your uh, progression there is that um, she never got away from that precarity of not knowing uh, where the resources were going to come from to meet all the needs. Um, and she never got away from it because she really did consider anybody's need that she was aware of to be something that she was responsible for. <laughs> so, there was, so, so, so her home was this sort of community center yeah. where there were always needs. Um, people came because they couldn't make rent because they were hungry because, you know, they were and she had real needs, you know, paying her mortgage and, you know, trying to make sure she could pay the bills. Um, and I remember in the midst of that, you know, she was a woman who, uh, who, who did have resources and more than money, you know, had access to a lot of people. I mean, she had become a well-known person by the end of her life. And um, I remember one time she went to uh, Brown University and uh, she came back just laughing. I said, what is so funny? She said, well, I went up there and told them the same stories I tell every day of my life. She said, and they gave me $5,000 to tell those stories. <laughs> she thought it was the funniest thing. And so um, the next day, the next day she called me and she was trying to figure out how to, uh, how she was going to pay her uh, uh, light bill, I think. And I said, well, you know, you, you got that $5,000 from Brown University. And she said, oh, I gave all of that away yesterday. I got to figure out this for today. <laughs> I just thought, well, that's a, you know, it's a powerful thing to believe that, not, you know, not only are everyone's needs real and something that belongs to the community, but also, you know, all the resources are something that God has made available to all of us. And uh, if we share, there's a possibility that, I mean, I, I think she really felt like that the fellowship of the communion of the beloved community was that um, we would just go on talking with one another about these things. Mm -hmm. it, uh, it wasn't something that she needed to become individually responsible for herself or for, you know, this set of things. But rather, um, you know, we use what we have to meet the needs we're aware of today. And we, uh, we, we talk and pray together about how to meet the needs of tomorrow, because that's how we know God's faithfulness. And um, it, it was a beautiful lesson for me. I, uh, yeah, I'm great, grateful for her. I think what Jesus was preaching as good news was something like what she came to trust as this uh, community of exchange where uh, whoever has a little bit more shares what they have and whoever has need asks for help so that we uh, we learn what it means to be community with one another. Wow. Well, Jonathan, we really appreciate you talking with us today. It's been a lot of fun. Well, I'm glad to connect with y'all. <laughs> I yeah. look forward to hearing the music that comes from this conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. Preacher, where's my money? 
What kind of store are you running here? I put my cash in that plate. Now my blessing is late. If it was ever coming my way in the first place, preacher, I hate to say it, but I'm starting to think you already know. People need water and food, and all that I see you do is build a bigger house for your Jesus show.